Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Today we're joined by Dr. Jeremy Carnes. Dr. Carnes is a postdoctoral scholar here at UCF specializing in indigenous rhetorics, particularly visual and material rhetorics. He's working on his first book on comics by indigenous creators and the rhetorical affordances of comics as a visual medium for considering land-based practices by indigenous communities. In addition to indigenous rhetorics, Dr. Karn's research interests include comic studies, media studies, fan culture studies, translingualism, and the digital humanities. He's also currently working with Dr. Jamila Karim, a past guest of ours on this podcast, on a grant funded by the Sam and Virginia Pats Foundation in partnership with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Carnes. Thanks for having me. Well, so we know, based on that introduction, that you have a strong background in um, indigenous rhetorics. Let's start with just some basics. What got you passionate about indigenous rhetorics? What was your your way into that? Yeah, it's a really good question that uh, people always ask me, and I'm not. I never really have like a moment, right? Um, it's like a development over the course of eight years while I was in grad school, right? Um, uh, I did a little research uh, in indigenous literatures in my master's program when I was in my master's at Ball State University in Indiana. Um, worked in an independent study with one of my professors and uh, realized, like, I'm really interested in this. But I wasn't actually writing about it at the time. I was writing about turn-of-the-century periodicals, <laughs> um, early modernist, uh, like, early, m- like, modernist literary, literary magazines. Um And then I got accepted to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And one of the deciding factors for me to go there was because the English department had three full-time faculty members that only did indigenous studies, um, which is kind of unheard of. Um, And so I wanted to go and work with them. Um, So I got started there and it was like I was in a completely different world and it was maybe five hours away from where I had been doing all of my degrees up to this point um and I was the first indigenous studies class I took uh I got involved in um then taking uh Anishinaabemon which is the language of the Ojibwe community up uh, up north um and was reading all of these books and learning languages and it just kind of snowballed from there uh and i just found myself sort of like uh not really ever wanting to talk about anything else in my work and so it kind of helped to define it Hmm. so i had a question for you um that's selfish but it might be one that you get asked a lot um so my background came from more from a literary uh perspective as opposed to a rhetorical perspective um but I'm curious as to why the rhetoric of indigenous communities as opposed to studying it in terms of like the traditional sense of literary study. 
So this is actually something that I continually struggle with because I also have a background. My background is primarily in literary studies. Um, so that's what my MA and my PhD are largely in. Um, I think with indigenous communities, uh, because story is so central to the ways in which we make meaning, the ways in which indigenous communities consider uh, their relationalities, their ways of understanding place and people. Um, I actually think that the divide between literature and rhetoric is a little less stark uh, in indigenous studies than it is, say, for instance, um, in kind of American studies um, more specifically. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in terms of the differences between the two? Yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure I've kind of put my finger on it yet uh, completely. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of like institutional history in America. Um, the sort of like growing up of composition programs underneath literary, uh, uh, underneath literature departments, English departments that are kind of run by literature, uh, which causes for some complicated uh, interpersonal relationships. Um, and then once composition kind of theory and uh, uh, um, thinking about teaching of writing becomes something not kind of de defined by literature, um, then it causes a little bit of a, um, right, like a differentiation, not a bad differentiation, not necessarily, right, like, but there are different ways to approach these sorts of things that don't have to be defined by, like, teaching, um, I don't know, uh, Shakespeare in a first-year writing class, right? Um, um, not that I think there's anything wrong with that, but, right, like, there's an institutional history there. Um, whereas I think in indigenous studies, what I think we see is a lot of, so some of the central and earliest kind of indigenous rhetorics folks like Malaya Powell, um, from the, uh, from Michigan state, uh, a lot of her research, um, Dr. Kim, uh, Kim Weiser, who works at the university of Oklahoma, um, a lot of their research mix indigenous rhetorics with indigenous literary studies because so much of what they pull out of kind of rhetorical choices are from the literature that's written by and about indigenous communities. Um, so there's not, the divide doesn't exist in quite the same way um, because that institutional history doesn't really define the, define those uh, kind of departmental questions. How does that work for, for you when you, think about or when you approach teaching writing or teaching, you know, any variation of the, you know, writing classes, courses that we have in our department with, you know, your, you know, passion for indigenous studies. Um, what are, you know, as an introduction to, you know, a way in or, or the connection in how it works for you, um, how do you think about those two kind of coming together, say, like for a class when you're when you're designing how to how to incorporate those things? Yeah, I mean, I think it for me, it always depends on w what texts you start with. Um, anytime I teach this stuff, I almost always start with or if I have a student interested in, um, for instance, I've worked with a couple of master students um, on their non-thesis and thesis projects in the department. Almost always one of the things I require them to read is Thomas King's The Truth About Stories, um, a native narrative, um, primarily because I think it is – Thomas King is well-known because he is a novelist. Um, his most famous book is Green Grass Running Water. Um, but um, 
but a native narrative mixes the sort of like literary questions with these sort of questions about rhetoric and particularly the rhetoric of storytelling. Um, and I think you don't really kind of, um, you, you can't really get to the kind of the heart of what it means to do indigenous rhetorics, indigenous literary studies, indigenous studies in general, unless you kind of have a deep understanding of what it means to, to tell stories. So for me, it always comes back to that kind of central question of like, what text do I start with? And it's always kind of like, let's start talking about stories. Let's start thinking about how stories work. It sounds like the difference between um, what happens in a lot of English or literature classes where it's like, um, don't consider the author, right? Mm. The text stands alone. Don't read this as a, as, a, as a biography or an autobiography. Don't read into it in terms of the author's personality or, or their past history. Let's just consider the text. And the difference now seems like, no, we need to consider the, um, the experiences that shape the creation of the text as much as so it's as much about practice as it is about product does that sound accurate okay and i think practice is really important right because like if we think about for instance um right like uh one of my some of my favorite stories uh in the uh ojibwe tradition uh involve uh nanabuju uh the trickster figure of the ojibwe people and anytime you would hear a story about Nanabuju or Nanabush, um, depending on who's telling that story, that story is going to uh, elicit different feelings, is going to carry different meanings. And it's not that the story is changing, it's that the teller is choosing to emphasize different things, is coming at it from different perspectives, is coming at it with a different background. And so, yeah, for I think for this, it, practice is as important, if not more important, than product, um, which it definitely changes sort of like where we start our questioning. Mm. So thinking about how we take bring this approach into our practice in the classroom, especially with first year writing, this might be an interesting time to talk a little bit about um, a future course that you're going to be working um, with in this in the spring of 2023. Um, I think you know what I'm referencing. <laughs> Indeed, I do. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, first, I think what is it? <laughs> so, um, it's a special topics course, and forgive me, I don't remember the number right now, um, but it is subtitled "The Rhetorics of Indigenous Communities." Um, and the focus is to think kind of about these questions that we've been talking about right now, um, right? Like, what does it mean to have rhetoric about and by indigenous communities? Um, did you find the number? Yeah, I, I asked for it before the podcast. It's, um, ENC 3372, Topics in Civic Rhetorics and Writing, Rhetorics of Indigenous Communities. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. Um, Had to write that down. I, would yeah. not, I was not going to remember all of that. It's, yeah. <laughs> I'm teaching the class and I don't remember <laughs> yeah. all of that. Um, so, yeah. So um, with that class, we are going to start. I've already decided that we're definitely going to start with Thomas King's book. Um, it's uh, it's a short and easy to read book, but it brings up all of the kind of complications around um, discussing indigeneity both from outside indigenous communities, right? So it brings up questions of like mascots and stuff like that, which is very kind of prominent in our state where one of the biggest uh, colleges has still has a 
shall we say, problematic mascot. Um, and then, um, and then, but then also within the communities themselves, thinking about the ways that elders think about teaching younger folks in the communities. Um, so Thomas King is Cherokee. He's going to come at this from a really particularly Cherokee perspective. Um, but, but right, like it, it's going to set the groundwork for the class so that then we can think about how, um, how all of this, uh, all of these stories have been told in different ways, right? Um, so what I'm trying to think about with the class is not only the rhetoric uh, that is shaped by indigenous communities, um, for indigenous communities, uh, which is a lot of what we're going to spend our time with. We're going to spend our time. I know one thing we're going to do is we're going to watch the show Reservation Dogs, mm. um, at least the first season, because uh, I think it's a really good example of, right, like indigenous media created by indigenous people for indigenous people. Um, there are jokes that I watch and I have been studying indigenous rhetorics for a long time and I didn't grow up on a reservation, so I still don't catch all of the jokes, um, right? Um, and so thinking about sort of like that by and for kind of created media. But then we're also going to spend a lot of time thinking about the stories that were told about indigenous communities, right? Um, and how that rhetoric has kind of seeped into indigenous communities. So thinking about things like blood quantum, right? Um, which is the the sort of the the law that you have to have a certain amount of Indian blood in order to be claimed by a tribe. Um, and if you don't have that much Indian blood, um, then you cannot you cannot be enrolled in that tribe, um, which was something that was put on indigenous communities by the United States government and by the Canadian government um, and has been adopted now. Um, and there is a large kind of conversation in indigenous communities about like sort of do we keep doing blood quantum? Do we find a new way to do enrollment? Um, and so thinking about stuff like that and then also thinking about federal Indian law, um, stuff like the Dawes Act, which is the big uh, it's the General Allotment Act of 1888, uh, 1886, something like that. Um, basically where land got parceled um, and now it's all about private property. Indig uh, individually owned private property plots, which is not the way that indigenous communities thought about their relationship with the land. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about how, how those stories told by the U.S. government then affect the sort of rhetoric coming out of indigenous communities and how in the past, say, 60 years since the American Indian movement of the 1960s, there's been a lot of pushback against this sort of rhetoric. And this is not your first time teaching a course that features indigenous rhetoric, correct? Did you you've taught other ones <clears throat> as well? I have not here. Yes, um, but okay. yes, I have taught them elsewhere. So I'm curious um, because you know we're all subject to our own biases, whether they're good or bad. We have formative experiences that shape the way we view the world, and all we can do is kind of interrogate ourselves to figure out where what those are, right? Yeah. When we approach things. So I'm wondering: is are there any common? Um, like considerations that you have students em embark upon when they when they first come into a class like this in th terms of the way their perspective versus, you know, a shift in perspective they need to consider to be open to um, this examination and, and these events? Yeah, um, it's actually something I normally do on the very first day. Um, I normally do it if I'm teaching a class like this, I do it before we even talk about the syllabus. I'll come in and I'll write the word Indian on the board. And then I will prompt my students to just tell me everything they think about when they think about that word, 
right? What, what, what is the first thing that comes to mind? It doesn't matter what it is, right? And we get into really, really messy territory, right? Um, but we get it all on the board the first day and we get it out and we say, okay, now what we're going to spend a lot of time doing this semester is thinking about uh, how much of these are based in stereotypes, how much of these are based in kind of really problematic histories, right? Like it's, it's a little um, mind-boggling the amount of students that say things like um, that all Indians have died out, um, that there aren't Indians anymore, that there aren't na- there aren't Native people uh, anymore, which is you know patently not true, um, but that's kind of the story that has defined uh, Indigenous communities from the sort of a governmental. Uh, kind of settler colonial perspective, right? Um, and so I kind of just start in the mire and the muck in my classes um, so that we can kind of get all of the kind of worst stuff out of the way. And then we can start to, from that moment on, think about, okay, like, what of this tracks and what of this maybe doesn't track uh, in the ways that uh, in the ways that we expect, if that makes sense. Yeah, do you find that a lot of the students are just missing big chunks of like historical information about <laughs> absolutely what happened um, yeah. and and what you know the the government of the United States did and and what were some of those cuz if cuz that is is a big part of it i think is just you know just that missing piece of information um that's there or maybe it was sort of you know covered in a very superficial way um you know, one of my students, uh, uh, Sebastian Garcia, who was on a previous episode of this podcast, that was his 1102 project, was looking through his uh, AP U.S. history textbook oh, sure. for issues yeah. of representation. And, and you know, he did a quantitative and qualitative analysis of, of how those groups were talked about. And he, and he found some, some not, you know omissions or or lack of representation you know by certain groups in the story of you know the history of the United States as taught in his AP history class you know just within the last 10 years you know right so that's that's something that I think is probably part of the like you said messy unpacking process of of starting the course yeah I mean, so much of the, so much of all of this work, right? Like we can't really talk about indigenous rhetoric until we realize that the stories that we've been told about indigenous people are based in a settler colonial view of the world, right? But like settler colonialism, and there's a famous essay called Settler Colonialism and Settler Colonialism and the Elimination of the Native by Patrick Wolf. Um, And in it, his kind of famous line is, it's like the often quoted line is, territoriality is settler colonialism's specific irreducible element. So land, land is what matters. And the whole point is settlers come to the United States, they need land for people to build farms on, to build houses on. Well, who has control of the land at the time? Well, just because of where they are, indigenous communities have control of the land. They're the ones that are making their lives uh, off of the land. So we remove them. Uh, but then eventually there are more settlers and we have to remove them more. And then there are more settlers. And eventually there runs out of place to move indigenous peoples. Um, and so with that in mind, then, right, like we have to understand this like basic history 
Uh, and the problem is, is that m I'm finding most students who come into classes like this one don't. Um, right, like we don't even think about like the history of our own state uh, and the sort of like the fact that the Seminole Nation wasn't in fact a nation originally, right? Um, they are a group of uh, of uh, Creek, uh, Muskogee Creek peoples, um, not just Muskogee Creek, but primarily Muskogee Creek peoples who were in different kind of communities that joined up largely to fight the U.S. military. Um, uh, and, uh, and the Seminole Nation kind of like built out of that. Um, before there were the Tamuqua, um, for instance, uh, as one community that used to be in Florida that just aren't here anymore. Um, and so like we can't begin to think about the the ways that stories are told uh, until we realize that the stories that we've been told are inherently problematic. Um, and by problematic, I mean also inherently patently false most of the time. Um, and thinking about sort of that, that unpacking process is long and uh, pretty arduous and uh, not super comfortable for students. Well, it, it kind of rains on the parade of the idea of the new world colonial experience. Totally. <laughs> and look at what we've made of ourselves, you know, from from that first, uh, the first step on the north, you know, in, in where was it? In Plymouth. I was going to say Boston and yeah, I don't want to make anybody hate me too much. Um, but like, it's very much a story that's been crafted to highlight the success. Right. But again, success by whose definition and right. by which perspective. And yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to ask, so, you know, going back to the, the course and how you're kind of thinking of, you know, the arrangement or the design of it, you have a messy unpack at the beginning, um, and then you start with King, and then you know, what's your sort of goal, or or, or where where does it kind of go from there in terms of not only topically but also you know what you're going to have maybe the students engage in. Yeah, um, so I'm still making a lot of those decisions, um, but a lot of my thoughts right now are thinking about the ways that it can be a useful course for our students, right? Um, so not just like something that I'm interested in teaching because this is where my research is, but also something that students will be able to use. Um, so like, for instance, I know a lot of our students go to uh, law degrees after finishing in, in writing and rhetoric, um, which I think is great. So having a large chunk of the class that really thinks about federal Indian law um, and both the sort of like, how does federal Indian law work uh, right. What are the big kind of moves in federal Indian policy? What what's the sort of rhetoric around that? So, right, like we'd have to think about the the um, Justice John Marshall trilogy of the early 18, the 1820s and 1830s, wherein he kind of like it's a whole court battle between Georgia and and the Cherokee Nation. Um, and the big thing there is that he says that uh, that native tribes are and his quote is domestic dependent nations, right? So like unpacking sort of what that means rhetorically, right? What sort of moves is he trying to get us to think through there? And to think about then how law is sort of uh, bound up in these questions. But then also um, to get into sort of like media studies. Um, so thinking about um, indigenous visualities, which is where my primary work is. So things like 
Reservation Dogs, the TV show, but also um, I'm going to spend some time on some indigenous comics and thinking about the ways that uh, that kind of visuals communicate in a really particular way that's relatively different, for instance, than than kind of Western visuals might. Um, and then a large portion of this, obviously, it goes across the whole thing, but the sort of political sort of activism um, inherent in, in the rhetorics of indigenous communities. So thinking about um, particular activist moments like uh, the big one in the U.S. more more contemporary contemporarily is the no dapple movement um and thinking about the ways in which indigenous activists make use of things like twitter uh and facebook in in those moves um and so part of what i'm trying to do is to um i haven't really figured out the kind of larger arc yet but trying to pull in a lot of things that really um, show that like these sort of stereotypes of indigenous folks as being as existing in the past and as not around or not in, involved in kind of contemporary and modern life are just kind of patently false um, and that there are indigenous peoples doing really, really important uh, work um, that are that is really kind of um, like very rhetorically savvy. Um, and so uh, that's I, th I think a lot of the class is going to be, I think it's a lot, a lot of it's going to be, it's going to be like history meets exposure, right? Um, like we need to know this history and then we just need to be exposed to more stuff. Um, and so I think it's going to be a lot of that. Um, I haven't decided sort of what, uh, what sorts of things I'm going to ask students to produce in the class yet. Um, so a lot of this goes back to my own pedagogy of like, doing some theory and then also some praxis work, um, some practical sort of stuff. So early stuff might be kind of like engaging with the sort of like rhetorical theory that indigenous scholars have come up with. And then later work would be like, okay, now like, what would you produce? What could we, what could we make out of this? Um, and this, this is largely the move I make in a lot of my classes. Well, given your background in looking at comics, comic studies, um, you were kind enough to share some things with us um, off camera or off mic that you had been working on. And one of them I was reading, and I hope that it's okay that I quote you directly, yeah. um, but that uh, comics complicate multimedia relationships across history. And this idea of, um, of how gutter spaces in comics are... Um, used maybe untraditionally as would be a word. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I, I feel like the conversation is kind of going there in terms of um, if you're considering the ways in which we construct messages and if you're only limited to maybe what the prevailing um, colonial history would have provided you, uh, there's a there's a, a whole um, canon of fantastic um, indigenous literary um, scholar, or not, not just scholars, but literary producers, um, you know, um, Louise Erdrich and um, Sherman Alexie. And I mean, those are probably like the most popular, but this idea of, I know in my own readings, there's a lot of play with form in literature. So this idea of how that translates into multimedia and, and comic production, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so I guess I'll just do it by kind of starting with that particular comics artist, um, just because it gives us a kind of grounded way to think about it. So um, the artist that I have spent the most time thinking about his work is Michael Yagulinas. Uh, he's a Haida artist um, 
from uh, from the Pacific Northwest, um, from Haida Gwaii, uh, which is a the used to be Queen Charlotte Island, right off of the coast of British Columbia, um, and um, he he does this really fun thing where he kind of uh, well, first off, he he kind of collapses kind of hierarchies that exist in Western society, right? So when we think about comics, we think about the sort of like Superman, Batman, like dime store throwaway, like this is kitsch art. It's not made to be like saved and like seen as like high art or anything, right? Um, what he does is almost all of his comics are actually large murals um, that he creates as a huge mural. And then he breaks it down into page by page sequences so that you read the comic, but you can also like buy two copies of the book, tear out all the pages and recreate the mural on your wall. Right. So he's uh, and most of these murals are housed in large, very well-respected art museums. Um, the Seattle Art Museum did a really uh, big show of a lot of his work uh, recently. Um, and so thinking about the ways in which indigenous art can kind of start to collapse some of these binaries is really fun. Um, but then, yeah, to go to the question of gutters, right? Um, so gutters work really fun in comics because they're like the, they're like the time Scott McCloud, a famous comics uh, scholar uh, and practitioner, he talks about how the gutters are where that's where the action actually happens. What we're actually seeing are two still images, and we're actually filling in the action between the images. So really quickly, before we go any further, uh -huh. give us a definition of gutters. Oh, so that, okay. Right. <laughs> so everyone Good can point. follow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So gutters are literally just that space in between the panels in comics. So every panel, uh, it, kind of panels are set by side by side, and it's that white space in between. And so Scott McCloud says that that white space actually has so much stuff happening there. Because we see his famous example is a picture of a man with like an axe raised above another guy behind him. And then the next picture is of the, of a city skyline with a scream across it. Now, like the artist didn't draw an axe hitting someone. We did that in our head. Right. And so he talks about how like we're kind of complicit in the crime. Right. Is his sort of like language. And what's really fun about that is that then there's a really particular like linearity to the ways that stories are told um, and the ways that uh, gutters kind of represent this like time in empty space. Um, with comics artists like Yagulanas, he does a really different thing because the gutters, instead of being this white space in most of his works, the gutters are black form lines. And the form lines are actually what you use to kind of put the larger mural together. Um, and the form lines aren't just gutters to not be interacted with. The form lines actually become things in the story, right? They become fish that are pulled from the ocean. They become the waves of the ocean as they crash over a boat, right? Um, so thinking about the ways in which uh, the relationship between people and time, people and space is really different if we think about gutters as this represent representation of time and space, right? So then now, uh, instead of having this time and space being this like thing that we can't control that is just kind of there, no, now it's a thing that's actively acting on people, um, which is uh, fundamentally like not Western way of thinking about our relationship to time and place. Um, 
And so, and there's, there are really particular ways in which that's put into the, 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 these sort of media forms. Well, it's, I mean, it reminds me of um, the brief exposure I've had to Native American literature and how the themes of time and being very different from the way that maybe like a Eurocentric perspective would consider time. That's right. And I don't, I, I don't know enough to know if that's um, like a commonality across indigenous cultures, um, at least in North America, or if that's just maybe that's just the commonality amongst your Euro, Eurocentric perspective is that time works one way and everybody else sees it as something else. So that's really interesting to think about um, those constructions, in particular, like the the play of form and you think about how form plays out so much in other artistic expressions in indigenous cultures and that it's just finding that other way to pin to kind of manipulate those um those states of being right and this is where i think like it feels so much like we're talking about literature here and yet if it also to me feels so much like we're talking about right like rhetorical studies too mm -hmm. right because like there's a way in which Thinking about these formal questions that we've talked about are things that I learned in my literary studies department um, or in my like literary studies courses. But then I would go to my to my rhetorical studies classes, wherein we think about the ways that writing can help us to relate to places that we live and times that we live and people that we interact with, right? Um, and so it's thinking about like now writing becomes a thing that we can actually think about differently in how we like can inter use it to interact with places right um and so i'm i'm just thinking about how right like all of this is kind of bound up in these really kind of complicated questions that oftentimes the ways that for instance like western universities are kind of created we love our silos we love to like differentiate um right and so much of those silos actually comp are complicated by something like indigenous studies which is kind of inherently interdisciplinary yeah and i think it also the other thing that that i was thinking about as you were you know talking was literacies and multiple literacies that we have or that we gain cuz when in thinking about you know, comics, gutters, how action um, is, is and time is represented. It almost is you have to sort of, you know, tune yourself to a new way of reading, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and a new uh, a way of, of shaping meaning from the thing that you're looking at. And that's something that I think even in composition classes, we, or we talk to our students about, some of the things that they already have, like they already have those and maybe don't realize them. And so, you know, I think talking about texts and, and genres that are constructed in these very kind of different ways that require us to think differently and read differently is something that, you know, we can introduce to students, but also we can show that students also have that ability, even though they haven't sort of formally thought about it as as a literacy yet to to sort of consider those things have you found that do you use comics in in the classroom or or you know with students having them read and and what's your sense of of how they read them or or you know how they how they make meaning out of those things yeah i do use comics um in my classes so it definitely comes down to sort of like <clears throat> um Students are, I think that my, my, uh, my interactions with students have shown that students know how to read visuals really well. Um, even if they feel like they can't, they often can. Um, and they often just kind of like 
second guess themselves. Um, and most of the time they do that and then we start talking and then they come up with these brilliant thoughts about how visuals are working and how they're doing particular work. Um, and so when I put a comic in front of them, then it comes laden with all of these like uh, thoughts that they have about what is a comic and what a comic can do, right? Uh, comics are superheroes, they're for kids, they, right, like they exist in all of these spaces. Um, and then I put something in front of them that doesn't actually align with any of those thoughts. And almost always it's, uh, it's sort of like sweeping the legs out from underneath students a little bit, um, but but they but they like take it all in stride so well um, because so one of the comics that I use in my uh, ENC eleven oh one class often is um, a chapter from this book called Unflattening by Nick Susanis um, and Nick Susanis is uh, he's pretty well known for having been one of the first folks who wrote his entire master's or his entire doctoral dissertation in comics form. Um, and unflattening is the product. Uh, and so much of it is about like the ways that we think, right? The ways that we become cogs in machines or the ways that we break out of those cogs because we're kind of built to, to think and do in certain ways. And that's the chapter that I assign my students. And almost always they start off really trepidatiously. Like I don't, comics haven't been my thing. I don't read comics. I don't know how this works. And then we start looking at the pictures and we start actually thinking about like what are the images and the text doing together um and they're able to take off take off in just ways that i don't think they even thought of themselves as being able to do right the um so it goes back to this question of right like literacies that students have right um now with that then outside of comics i will also say that i i this semester changed up my 1101 class a little bit and put uh, the introduction of the book Braiding Sweetgrass in front of my students, uh, which is a book by Robin Wall Kimmer, uh, who is um, a botanist, an indigenous botanist. And she uh, opens this book about relationship with plants, but she opens it with the story of Sky Woman, um, and, uh, which is a creation story. And um, she kind of walks through this and then she does a little bit of comparative work with the creation story from the Bible. And then she thinks about how these two creation stories actually show us different ways of relating to earth, to like the planet that we live on. Um, and so the, when, when my students walked into class the day that we were reading it, so many of them were like, this is unlike anything I've ever read before. Uh, and I was like, great. Yes. Let's talk about that. How is it unlike anything you've ever read before? And so many of them were like, the ways in which she was telling the story, the ways in which it was based in these like almost cyclical repetition, right? Um, these, they like, they noticed things about it that was really like very astute. Um, and yet, right, like this was a moment where I could see like, this was a literacy that maybe they haven't been engaging with in quite the same way. Uh, and so it was really kind of fun to kind of see them be able to do this sort of like stretching. Yeah, and I think it's a great way into what analysis is, you know, what yeah. rhetorical analysis is. You know, we were having a conversation in the hallway the other day about, you know, students and, and rhetorical analysis and getting them to show, like, you know, their thinking and, and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, what your comment just made me realize is that how the text itself and maybe changing up the text or, or having, you know, something other than, like, the the 
the essay or or you know the piece of research necessarily where they bring to it a lot of trepidation or they bring to it a lot of you know sometimes you know intimidation of that genre itself mm-hmm. right even before they've had a chance to to get into it um it, it's it's interesting how you know maybe just giving them like you said something completely different that they they haven't read before is a great way to sort of, you know, get into encouraging students, showing students how to express and write about and talk about their own thinking and their own kind of processing and analysis of, yeah. of what they're what they're seeing in a text. Yeah. Yeah, I, we were talking about this on the walk over, how our students um, can get so much from textual analysis. And I think it is a literacy that they're much more savvy with than they give themselves credit for because they've grown up in a world where information is given multimodally, you know, for a large part. And it might be information that's not necessarily, um, you know, considered like traditionally of significance, but they still have that literacy either way. And I know personally, I struggle with comics because I am a fast reader and you have to be a very patient reader when you're looking and considering comics. You can't just you know, flip through page after page to try to figure out what's going to happen next. You really have to take the time and slow down and consider what is happening in every single frame. And um, it's interesting when you say, you know, when I think of comics, you think of like traditional uh, superhero type tropes. When I think of comics, I immediately think of all of the ones that are considered to be delivering messages that are more subversive. So like Persepolis, mm-hmm. um, even... Um, uh, there was one that I read, I think it's Camelot 3000, um, uh, V for Vendetta, The Watchmen. Um, those are the ones to me, Mouse, you know, those are the ones that I'm like, oh, when I think of comics, that's what I think of. And I guess technically they're graphic novels. I mean, I don't know if we're going to split hairs over that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm someone who, you know, is a connoisseur of Batman and Superman and sure. all of these things, but yet I don't ever think of those as comics. I think of those as just this other thing versus I think of comics as being this medium for delivering messages that are a little more contrary to the like the popular narrative. Um, do you have any thoughts as to as to why? I think we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but why is there why is comics in particular seem to be such a good vehicle for those messages? Yeah, um, I think that a lot of it is because. We don't expect, mostly, we don't expect comics to do that work, right? Like, we don't expect comics. Now, maybe this is not so fair anymore um, because, right, like, lots of people read Watchmen and Mouse and Persepolis and these, like, very kind of complex, very heavily political uh, uh, stories. Um, But I still think comics exist, right, like, for most folks – I think comics exist as this thing that is like for younger people as a stepping stone to reading, right? Um, This is often the sort of like narrative. Now, I don't, I want to be very clear that I'm kind of painting obviously with a really broad brush here. Um, But I think that one of the things that's really interesting is uh, that this isn't um, comics aren't the sort of like um, the the sort of put on a pedestal way of how do we share information, right? Um, writing is like the written word has been the privileged way of sharing information in Western culture, 
right? Um, there's a reason why, like, in colonial history, the point is we need to get language in front of these people. We need to get written language in particular in front of these people, right? Um, no matter where we're talking about it in the world, if it was colonized by a Western culture, language becomes central to the to the sort of colonial project uh, and written language becomes central to the colonial project. And so uh, we've put like the written word in a really particular way, but many cultures uh, – the written word wasn't really put on this pedestal, right? Um, for some cultures, right, like written word wasn't even a thing. So for most uh, native communities in the U.S., written languages weren't really the weren't really the kind of the modus operandi, right? Like it was, it was verbal. I mean, everything was kind of verbal language, and then there was there were visuals. There were there were things like, um, like like. Uh, uh, winter counts that were written on hides, um, like buffalo hides, and there were uh, birch bark art up in the north, and there, right, like so. Thinking about the ways in which actually comics are taking this sort of like the written and the visual and bringing them together to live in a kind of media that uh, that kind of contradicts these sort of hierarchies is part of what I think is so interesting about comics, and part of why I think they. They lend themselves to asking some of these questions really, really well. Um, there's a famous, and I'm going to completely lose the kind of citation here, but um, there is a well-known decolonial theorist who talks about this, um, who says that uh, part of the deal with colonialism is that there is a com uh, like a, a meeting of uh, what he saw, what he calls contradicting literacies. Right, that like the literacies that colonialists were bringing with them, and then the literacies that native folks had were different, uh, and so that 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 sort of tension is part of what leads to the sort of combat, um, in many ways. Of, of course, like the violence is actually what leads to this, right? But um, but but I think this this notion of combative literacies is really interesting, or competing literacies, um, if only because right, like comics is a medium that that works to to bring competing literacies together, right? Um, and so I think like in the past hundred years, what used to be competing isn't really competing in quite the same way. And so I think comics can really like pull some of those really interesting questions to the foreground. This is just a stab in the dark, but is it also the fact that you can provide more contextual support to the message in a comic than, sure. you, than yeah. you would necessarily in other mediums? Is, do you think that's a part of it as yeah. well? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's something to be said about like right, like creating a visual context, mm. right? Um, that it takes a lot of space and time to be able to work that visual context into a written text, right? Um, right, like then you would have huge chunks of sort of like explanatory sort of uh, writing um, that may or may not get read, <laughs> right? Like stage directions, right? Almost. Stage yeah. directions, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, like, I'm thinking of this really funny comic. Uh, it's one of the comics in a, a collection that I have written about, um, and the story is like a retelling uh, of a of a of a of a traditional story, but it's like set in the far future. Um, and it's about like, okay, so we don't live on earth anymore because you can't live here. Um, but then they learn like, oh, well we can actually come back. So they send back two indigenous men, two Creek men, um, and they come back and they say, but the important thing is you can't eat anything. Don't eat anything. Um, because it's really important that you just like, you, it, 
it could all be tainted. Like, don't eat the food. Uh, and they come back and then he finds a can of spam. Um, and like, it's not written about, right? We only watch this happen, right? And of course, like this would take some contextual background of knowing about like commodity foods and how commodity food programs are are really uh, are really like highly used uh, on reservations um, because of kind of colonial histories. Uh, and so, spam is one of the kind of big commodity foods because it is meat that can be put that can be it's impervious, like, right? It can last <laughs> yeah. right forever. Yeah. Um, and so, I think there are ways in which, right, like the visuals of that story add. This context that is that makes jokes without having to be written about um, mm. that I think is really fun. Mm. I wonder if you could um, switching gears just a little bit. Tell us um, about your project with the Seminole Indian Tribe and the uh, grant program. Um, I'm so glad you asked. That's what's going to be my next question too. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, yeah, so I'm walking. I'm working with Dr. Jamila Kareem and uh, Dr. Sherry Robertson. Um, and uh, we are working with the Seminole Tribe of Florida, um, in particular working with their uh, Tribal Historic Preservation Office and the Atafiki Museum, which is a museum that was completely uh, funded and built um, by, by and for Seminole folks. Um, so it, it's a really interesting museum to go to on the Big Cypress Reservation on the south end of Lake Okeechobee. Um, it's really great to see that happen because it's a museum that tells Seminole history by Seminole people, as opposed to Seminole history by Florida you know, colonialists, yeah, by yeah. by white colonialists in mm -hmm. Florida, right? Exactly. Um, and so, one of the things, so the project, the way that um, the way that it's kind of happening now is they have this slew of 20th century newspapers and newspaper clippings um, from kind of the 1940s, maybe the 1930s are the earliest, up through like the 1970s in Florida. And what they want help doing is building out their digital archive so that um, it has both sort of uh, a rundown of what's in the articles that are on there, but also contextual information. So that like, for instance, when community members are going into it, they'll know that there are there is some pretty racist and problematic language that appears in, for instance, the Okeechobee Times, right? Um, and so we're doing a lot of this work to kind of like go through this, and I'm learning a lot more about Florida history than I expected to learn, right? Like, and really, really like, like specific local history um, and the sort of communities surrounding uh, surrounding the reservations. Um, most of the reservations here are south of us. Uh, in So we're in Orlando. The, most of the reservations are down kind of Okeechobee area and then over in Hollywood. Um, and um, so that's, that's kind of the bulk of the project is building up this digital archive and repository so that it's more user-friendly, user both for members of the community, but also for researchers who come and want to work in 20th century newspaper clippings about kind of the Seminole tribe and their relationship with local Florida communities. So um, reading be between the lines on, on the communication that I've had access to, it seems mm -hmm. like there were some shifts in terms of the the, the plan for the project. Um, did you have something else in mind going into it and then it just wasn't necessarily useful? Or can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. One of the things that uh, I fell prey to uh, is, and and I, I, you know, I know better than this, um, I did all of my doctoral work and worked on grants in a different part of the country, 
Um, so up in the uh, the northern part of the country. I was in Wisconsin for most of this. And in Wisconsin, most of the tribal communities there are, um, they don't have access to as much money. Um, the Seminole tribe is a pretty wealthy tribe because they own uh, all of the Hard Rock uh, uh, hotel and casinos. And uh, and they're very, they're also very, very, very private uh, as a community for a lot of really particular historical and uh, historical reasons. Um, and so I went into this project uh, we wanted to kind of do some oral histories and um, thinking about sort of like the histories of the community as told by elders and people in the community. So that was what the whole point of the project was. And it was hopefully we were going to produce sort of uh, a, a book that would be usable for high school, um, middle school, high school, and maybe even early college courses. Um we uh, contacted the – so we, we got the funding for the grant. We contacted um, the tribe and uh, we, got a, we got word back that was basically like, yeah, we don't do this kind of work because we, we, don't, we don't force – right, like we don't force any people – in our community to talk to researchers. And most people in the community don't want to talk to researchers. And I was like, yes, that absolutely makes sense. Of course it does. Um, and uh, I realized that I was coming from this from with all of my thinking about the about the North in my mind, right? My advisor, uh, who is Ojibwe, she always told me, you don't go to a native community asking them for things unless you're giving things in return. So in grant funding terms, that means you don't go to them unless you have money in hand, right? Because then that's something you can help to give back to the community, which is great in practice, except for in certain, for certain communities. But for other communities, they're not really interested in the money that I'm bringing. They're interested in protecting their community. And of course that makes sense. Um, so I went with like this kind of one sort of thought in my mind and realized like, oh yeah, I'm applying what I learned in this different context here and it doesn't work here. Um, and luckily it worked out really well where we talked with the folks who who responded with us, which was the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and the, the museum. And we found this other project that would work really well. And we had a grant funder who was very um, uh, flexible with us. And so we just kind of like reworked the project so that we could do a project that worked for the Seminole community and not for us, right? Like that's not kind of the, the goal of this project is we didn't want to do something that was good for us. We wanted to do something that would actually help the community. Um, and yeah, then we also get to build these relationships uh, that hopefully lead to more projects that the community wants partners on. Um, but but again, it's the whole important thing was that it was defined and run by the community, and uh, we didn't really set the we didn't really set the kind of project in that direction to start off, and so it took a little redirecting. It's really interesting to consider that um, you know. A community's history could be commodified in a mm. certain lens. And while I know researchers approach these projects with the best of intentions, they we let's share this history. Let's make more people aware of 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 this community and what and and you know and how they come to understand the world, you know, based on their experiences. 
but it also then raises a lot of questions in terms of this this tradition now, as you've explained, of, hey, we've got money for you. Can you share your stories with us? You know, um, and it's something that you really had. I know you hadn't considered and I hadn't considered until you just mentioned it. And, and what does that mean about, um, you know, the other types of research that are that are ongoing and how these communities are forced to, in essence, like sell their stories yeah. for money to survive? And to think about the ways that like, yeah, we're I mean, like I realized all of the ways in which I was approaching this like a good capitalist. <laughs> um, right. Like I can pay you for the thing. Um, but. One of the things is, right, like one of the whole things with colonialism and capitalism as a kind of economic offshoot is, well, if we have enough money, then I can have anything. Anything can be mine as long as I have enough money for it. The point here and what I had like uh, this really difficult kind of coming to terms with, which was like, it was good. I'm glad that I had it was no, actually there's some stuff that like, it doesn't really matter how much money you have. It's not for you, mm-hmm. right? Like there's stuff that's particular to the Seminole community that the Seminole, com- Seminole community wants to keep within the Seminole community. So like as kind of researchers from a colonial tradition, like, yeah, great. We need to recognize that and we need to be comfortable and redirect ourselves, and not expect seminal community to redirect themselves or any any indigenous community Mm. right um that there's just stuff that's just not for us and that's fine like it has to be fine yeah um we are closing in on our time for this episode but i wanted to ask you um and of course megan if you have any uh, follow-up questions as well but you know what are some of the um next projects you're working on i know you know classic Overcommitter, um, um, <laughs> involved in so many things. Um, it's been you've noted. got the new course yeah. on the official <laughs> yeah, document. It has been noted. <laughs> this is... Let me tell you the thirteen projects I have in my brain right now. No. Um, but just you know, just what's what's um, what are you excited about? What's on the horizon? Um, what do you have coming up that that you're that you're getting into? Um, and again. We don't know all, so you don't have to mention all of sure. them if yeah, you yeah, want yeah, to. Yeah. Um, uh, the the ones that that you're kind of thinking about that you want to talk about. Yeah, so um, I mean, I guess the big one uh, that uh, that Megan actually talked a little bit about in the introduction was my my book. I'm trying to write my my first uh, academic monograph all about indigenous comics. So it's largely most of the stuff we kind of talked about throughout today. Um, but the other big one that I'm really excited about is I'm working with um, with uh, a, a colleague of ours who recently retired, Marcy Galbraith, and also um, uh, some colleagues in uh, the Center for Humanities and Digital Research, uh, Amy Giroux and Mike Shire. The four of us have been working uh, with uh, on projects related to St. Augustine, mm. and in particular to the Castillo or what was formerly known as Fort Marion. Um, because there's a history in the 19th century of Plains Indians prisoners being taken there after the Plains Indian Wars. Um, And uh, a lot of those folks um, actually produced ledger art while they were there. Um, And so a lot of, so one of the projects we're doing right now is we are putting together sort of trying to use the ledger art as historical documentation to think about the stories of these, uh, of these folks who were taken from the plains brought to Florida to live here and largely to be, uh, to be, um, uh, to kind of be made to learn how to be white men, right? Really to be assimilated. Um, and, uh, and then the ways in which some of these folks 
right? Like they died here, um, and their remains are still here. The 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 Saint uh, Saint Augustine um, uh, Military Cemetery uh, has two burial plots that just say six unknown Indians. Um, they're not even given their names, right? Um, so a lot of the work that we're doing, we were actually working with uh, with descendants uh, uh, from of these prisoners from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. Um, and there is a big event happening in November in St. Augustine. We are we have been able to, and this is largely thanks to the work of Dr. Amy Giroux, um, working, we're replacing, they're replacing those two headstones. They're putting one large headstone and it's going to have the names of the prisoners that uh, Dr. Giroux has been able to uh, identify from her kind of cemetery burial research. Wow. Um, which is really, really fantastic. Um, to go along with that, then we're, you know, so much of this history is kind of unknown to the tribes. So we're creating some uh, materials to try to help build out that history for them so that um, so that they kind of know, like, what happened to their ancestors. Because um, many of them thought, like, their ancestors came here and then died here. And that's not true always. Some of them went back to their homelands. And some of them actually went with... General Pratt, who was the guy who ran this, to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, which which he started after this. Um, so this is the big project, the other big project I'm working on right now. I've been sitting here shaking my head, which of course doesn't translate to <laughs> to this medium, because every time I think about people who settled in Florida, I think they're out of their minds because I moved here <laughs> in 2002 from New York, which you know it's not like like I'd never been to Florida. And I think about, you know, when we encounter the summers and the, the mosquitoes and alligators and snakes through our understanding, like present day, and to think that there were people that like took wagons here right. and decided to <laughs> to settle the, the wilds of Florida. I'm, I'm, they're kind of out of their minds a little yeah. bit. I mean, especially, you know, interior Florida, it's, I can't even imagine. Um, so it's it's really interesting to consider that idea of holy cow you've been you're taken prisoner and here you end up in this place that is you know, like sort of like nightmarishly fairy taleish in a way yeah. in terms of its of its uh, of the the forces that are trying to get you heat bugs animals etc um, that's really fascinating work that's yeah I'm really intrigued by that um, I had one last question. And that would be, and not to put you on the spot, but uh, any recommendations on readings, whether it be considering um, indigenous communities from you know an outside perspective or indigenous uh, writers in general? Like any, what what are some things that you like to recommend? Okay, so I know this episode is not coming out until November, I believe, but we're recording it in October, so it's spooky season. Uh, and one of the things that I am really, really into right now is indigenous horror, which mm. is a really, really burgeoning area of indigenous lit right now. Um, so uh, one of the main names there is a, a guy named Stephen Graham Jones. He's Blackfeet, uh, and he has this really amazing novel called The Only Good Indians um, that came out a couple of years ago. So definitely I would check that one out. Um, uh Erica Worth has this really fantastic novel that actually comes out on November 1st, but I got an early copy because that's how you roll. It's how we're friends and it's cool. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it's called White Horse and it is so scary and so good. Um, outside of horror stuff, uh, I would also suggest um, in, in the realm of rhetoric, um, uh, 
Dr. Kim Weezer's book on uh, it's called Back to the Blanket. Uh, so uh, uh, recovering American Indian rhetorical traditions, I believe, is the subtitle. Um, and then also anything by Dr. Malaya Powell, by Dr. Alexandra Hidalgo, um, by uh, Dr. Andrea Riley Mukovitz. Um, those are the kind of big names that those are the folks who I'm. Uh, their work is kind of helping to define my work in in rhetoric studies right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and having this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for having me.